Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Yeah, it would have been interesting uh, to see Mr. D. All the gods are kind of having their um, moment. Yeah, especially if he was Bacchus. That'd be cool. Yeah. And you know why the other one's so good? He'd be like, I'm Bacchus, baby. Oh no. <laughs> Hi everyone, and welcome back to Monster Donut, a literary and historical deep dive into the Percy Jackson series and all of its following spin offs. I'm Phoebe, a dramaturg and story consultant. And I'm Emily, a classics scholar ish and writer and today we're reading the quest for buford or is it it's leo valdez and the quest for buford and uh the son of magic from the demigod diaries these are our last two short stories from the demigod diaries right yeah there are our last two short stories i think ever <laughs> oh my where where are the trials of apollo short stories right Actually, they're not our last two short stories ever. There's technically, like, some online ones that were, like, posted on the blogs that are, like, barely canon. Yeah, we'll read those. (laughs) But before we get into these stories, if people are listening to this the day it comes out, it should be the Sun and the Star Day, because this is supposed to go up on May 2nd, so the new Nico book will have just come out today. So I'm sure some people listening are already reading it. I hope you're loving it. I hope it's amazing or that you loved it if you already finished it or that you will love it if you're going to pick it up later. I know future Phoebe is like holed up somewhere Mm -hmm. having logged (laughs) off of social media like a week ago to avoid spoilers. Pray for her. (laughs) For the sake of the pod being the resident, I'm not reading this unless it's in chronological order. I'm going to hold off. But Phoebe at one point was also talking about possibly doing a live react read. (laughs) Or like a bonus episode. I don't know. That would be like just me. sitting there talking about how I felt about it because Emily isn't reading it until we Give get to Give the people it. what they want, Phoebe. I'm sure people want it. It like, wouldn't be analytical. Just be me being like, that scene where this happened? Oh my god. <laughs> <laughs> Can you believe that Ethan Nakamura came back? Like, <laughs> <laughs> Okay, let's start with a summary of The Quest for Buford. Leo has been building the flying ship he had visions of as a child, but he placed a very important piece of the ship in the drawer in his walking animated table. Named Buford. (laughs) Named Buford, and the table got up and walked away. It left because Leo used Windex to clean it instead of, like, the fancy stuff. 
It was, I believe, lemon-scented pledge. So now the bunker and the surrounding woods are going to be blown up if they don't find this piece and the table within the hour. So Leo, Piper, and Jason all go looking for the table um, out in the woods. And while they look, they end up running into the Maynads. Is that how you say that? I pronounce it Maynads. But Maynads? Maynads. Yeah, it's Maynads. Maynads, who are worshippers of Dionysus, um, who cause them some problems. But eventually they find the table and they save the day. That's it. <laughs> Simple version. I thought it was fun that how many details there were about like all what Leo's doing to build the Argo too. Purely because I once got really, really, really weirdly into this YouTube channel chronicling this guy rebuilding a wooden sailing ship. It is literally like days of content. And it's like the whole process. And I was just like, oh, yeah, he's inserting the keel and then he's building the hull around it. Oh, like, how did he draft the plan? I know exactly how this goes. I'm basically an expert now. <laughs> I'm basically an expert now because I watch this YouTube. It's it's weirdly enthralling, but it also definitely falls under the YouTube category I lovingly refer to as like, everybody has one or two things they watch on YouTube that if they tried to explain to anybody else, that other person would be like, that is the most boring thing I've ever heard in my life. But everyone's got at least one, probably more. And that was my dad's and he got me into <laughs> I feel like mine aren't boring. <laughs> well, we none of us think ours are boring. What are yours? If I'm on YouTube scrolling around, the videos that I click on that are not videos that most people click on are like how to survive, insert horror movie no one's ever heard of here. <laughs> you know, it's most it's mostly the ones where like all of the characters have to play a game and only one person makes it out, like that kind of thing. That was how I first consumed Squid Game. <laughs> For me, there's like a bunch, but one of them by far is me watching like a 20 minute video of this guy like redrafting the whole of this wooden sailing ship it's called i think rebuilding tally ho if anyone wants to check it out and then uh, once everything goes down i also did find it to be really funny it made me really think about the differences between the, th the trio in percy jackson olympians of percy grover and annabeth and uh the trio in lost hero because <laughs> they're like oh my god we're gonna blow everything up and it just felt so starkly weird that jason was like oh my god we should evacuate everybody yeah i know when he said that i was like that's so smart jason <laughs> i was like oh my god responsible practical efficient like who mm -hmm. is this person they don't belong here <laughs> i just thought it was funny that that made me realize that nobody in the original trio would be like we have to evacuate it's like such a a realistic reaction that it surprised me but like also obviously speaks to jason's sense of you know he's very honorable yeah so it's christmas eve yeah um is this something that i'm being stupid about <laughs> because i spent the lost hero so confused because i was so sure the lost hero took place in october and then annabeth was like oh percy came home for winter break a little early and I was like, it's winter? And then this book was like, oh yeah, two months ago, The Lost Hero happened. And I was like, so it did take place in October? <laughs> like, am I losing my mind? They had to free Hera by the winter solstice. Am I wrong? I mean, yes. Like, I thought for sure that Percy was missing for eight months. And I was like, but that doesn't make sense. It must be like six months. But yeah, no, it's... Uh... I feel like, weirdly, The Lost Hero gives me strong October vibes. I don't know why. Like, because I'm with you. I also thought it was October for some reason. I don't know. I don't know. It's fine. So they have to go on a quest for Buford, and they run into a naiad named Brooke. And she's like, oh my god, well, my crazy cousins are here, so avoid them. And I was like, are those dryads? Like, I'm trying to stay ahead of the story, you know? I was like, are they dryads? Mm -hmm. No, those are in the woods, too. Like, what kind of cousins are we talking about here? And as soon as they described the group of them wearing the different colored robes, I immediately was like, Minads. I love the Minads. But uh, before that, they when they meet the Minads, they're actually walking through uh, the battlefield and around the area of Zeus's fist um, that's from Battle of the Labyrinth. Yeah, this is when I think of this story, that's the moment I think of. It's actually one of the only things I remembered about this story. <laughs> All of the times that I have been talking about events of the first series becoming myths, I'm thinking about this story i'm not thinking about like anything else it's this story hey, i anticipated this topic because that's literally what i wrote down i was like oh this is what phoebe was talking about 
But this, it's like the example of stories from the original series becoming legends to me. Because it's been a year and a half since the Battle of the Labyrinth. And at this point, it's it's worked its way into already the mythology of the camp. Like, it's not just the battleground. It's a cursed battleground. Like, it's bad luck to be here. Which... Mm-hmm. Originally, it was probably because, like, no one knew if Campe was still alive after she got buried under the rocks there, so they, like, kind of avoid it. You know, it's where the labyrinth entrance is, so it's like, oh, we don't want to go over there. But, like, over time, that has become something supernatural. It's now a cursed place that you should avoid because, like, there's something else happening over there. And it's just such, it's so cool getting to see a myth actually, like, form itself inside the camp from something that's like that was just like a real thing that we watched play out i think it's especially cool too because like none of the characters that are there were there for the battle so they're really like we the reader know what happened there but they have no idea Mm -hmm. they're like yeah i guess like people died i felt like actually this story was weirdly really dark there's a moment later where i was like this might be one of the most like traumatic moments in the series for me (laughs) Because I think there's so little, like, detailed violence on page in these books because they're kids' books. Oh, the dragon? No, it's it's this description of these Minads. Like, they, they're running off in the woods. It's like they're not even there for it. But it's just, like, this description of, like, this horrifying scream as they're ripping a dryad's tree apart. Oh, yeah. I was like, whoa, that's... It's it was a really striking moment to me cuz I feel like that kind of like violence and level of like cruelty you just don't see in these books. And I think also like the dwelling on the like yeah people really like died in this war like people that are these characters ages. And also like the Zeus's fist rock too. Like that was a very iconic part of the original series cuz that's like where they played capture the flag. There's a lot of scenes around there. And the fact that like it's just like completely abandoned because it's now a piece of this other thing yeah and it's not it's like zeus's fist is now just like a pile of rocks that's like completely unrecognizable as a fist anymore yeah they're not like playing capture the flag there anymore like this whole like this spot was like very important for like the whole first series and now it's just kind of a grave it's just such a moment i think about it all the time i want more of this but we won't be back to camp Half-Blood for a very long time after these I just realized that we won't be back to Camp Half-Blood for a really long time after these short stories. <laughs> While we were in this clearing, it made me wonder why the Minads were hanging out there. Yeah. Like, what about it drew them there? Yeah. Well, I think this is where we get into a little bit of the interesting history with the Minads. Yeah, I only know, like, one story about them, so would would love to hear more. <laughs> the only story I know is how they killed Orpheus, where he swore off women and, like, started solely having relationships with men, and so the Minads got angry and killed him. <laughs> they were like, no. <laughs> <laughs> and then his head floated to the Isle of Lesbos, where an oracle was born. I learned all of this very recently. <laughs> I love that. The gay oracle. Yeah, and it became so popular that uh, Apollo started getting angry. That's literally the only story I know oh, no, I know about them is that they were like really mad that Orpheus <laughs> swore off women. I think you know another story because I know you took Myth and Bible and I also took Myth and Bible in high school. One of uh, Oedipus's like ancestors, like two generations back or something, had also been murdered by Minads. There's a few different people that get murdered by them over the years. There's a lot of different like theories about like their origins and like what exactly they got up to. The one I kind of buy the most and my kind of general concept of them in my head is um, basically we we know that they were that was the name of the people who are followers of Dionysus and that they were specifically women and that they would partake in these rituals to Dionysus that involved basically getting into a drunken frenzy that may or may not have included the sacrifice of generally small animals and a lot of the Greek myths around the Minads are like this tragic scenario in which like a mother and sisters of a male character have run off into the woods and are such a drunken frenzy of violence that they don't recognize their family members who are torn to part by them. So it's just, it's generally thought the Minads are probably connected to a very ancient worship of Dionysus or 
an equivalent wine god that um, may or may not be indigenous to Greece. And what's also kind of interesting is that we're pretty sure that these kinds of rituals and like drunken frenzies as worship of Dionysus were gradually phased out, at least around the Athens area, um, and actually replaced with the festival of Dionysus, which is theater. So there's a thought that they kind of wanted to start maybe not having people getting super drunk in the woods and killing small animals once a year and started transitioning that worship into a lot more of like a public festival that was a little more PG and a little more like non-destructive. It's funny because it's like there are a lot of plays like I, I've i been doing a lot of reading of applications for a commission right now, like a theater commission. But there's been a lot of submissions that are about rituals. And I'm also thinking of like uh, Our Dear Dead Drug Lord by Alexis Shear, which the entire mm. thing is about a ritual performed on stage at the end. And so it is a, a very popular thing still like to perform rituals on stage. Like so many sacrifices happen in some of the best theater nowadays. <laughs> and all of that is just like the literal rituals happening on stage. There's also like mythology and superstition to the way that theater is performed and the idea of every night going through your lines in each scene to summon something into the room like to evoke something from your audience or plant an idea in their heads it's a very mystically heavy practice like it's basically still all rituals What's also kind of interesting is uh, I think in this story, he's also conflated a few other like worship of Dionysus things. Like he mentions that they sound like leopards Mm -hmm. at one point. And that's kind of a callback, I think, to the fact that Dionysus is traditionally depicted as wearing like leopard skins. And they're also nymphs in his universe. So usually the Minads are like followers of Dionysus and they're generally speaking depicted as mortal. It's possible there's a version of stories where they're nymphs that I'm not remembering But I think that comes from him also kind of conflating that with the story of like Dionysus' birth where he's raised by nymphs. So I think he was like, oh, yeah, these nymphs that raised him are his followers now. Like, I think. Mm. And I also thought it was interesting that they were kind of found around the battleground from Battle of the Labyrinth. Because I always feel like, you know, there's like this inherently like mystical and like ancient occult connection with the Minads. Because it's definitely like an aspect of Greek religion that existed but was phased out by the time like most people were writing stuff down so it was intriguing like they're kind of like to me very emblematic of like the deep dark forests of lore of, of yore in in greece i also i because they they show up specifically looking for dionysus isn't this where one of mr d's kids was killed yes it was and so i wondered if like this is a place that he comes to and that's why they're here looking for him It's either that or like this place actually is haunted and his son's ghost is hanging out here. And so they're picking up on the the Dionysus vibes. (laughs) I was also thinking about them looking for Dionysus, but I was actually more thinking about it in terms of why would they be drawn to him here? It's if like this is his home. Like this seems to indicate that in some way, shape or form, Dionysus is like tied to Camp Half-Blood kind of as his home now. Yeah. And they've and Chiron says uh that they've been there before like they they appear every once in a while looking for mr d he thinks of it as home but like subconsciously he would never admit that (laughs) it'd be one of those slip-ups you know when people like did you ever have that moment in college where like you'd you'd say oh let's go home and someone would be like oh my gosh you said home because you think of college as home now and they're like a year older than you and like love the school that's a very specific memory (laughs) you you know when that happens <laughs> uh no. But... I, I just imagine Mr. D having that moment where he says something about home and he's talking about Camp Half Blood and someone else is like, Oh my god, you said home accidentally. <laughs> and he's like It's Kyron. Shut up. <laughs> Should we talk about Leo pretending to be Dionysus? Well, I remembered because I think it was when we were on The Lost Hero talking about how there's a problem in the group where no one's willing to play ball and impersonate people just to like Yes, and the monsters. And then Leo immediately was like, I'm going to prove Phoebe wrong. I just thought it was fun seeing Leo trying to embody someone through like, because he doesn't know Mr. D. Mm -mm, So it's like him trying to put on the personality of a god he only knows of through probably like Fantasia. (laughs) (laughs) This like very dopey, drunk version of Dionysus. Mm -hmm. But I enjoyed it as like, Leo also is a guy who comes across as like all fun and games, but has this like 
deeper sadness going on that makes him more complicated, which is kind of what Mr. D's whole thing is. Mm. I was like, of all of the characters to impersonate Mr. D, it's fitting that it's Leo, despite the fact that Leo has never met Mr. D and doesn't know what he's doing here. Do you know, this is completely off topic, have you seen the Michelangelo Bacchus sculpture? I think I've seen a picture of it. I know what you're talking about, though. This is related to what I was talking about in our first episode, though, this sculpture. In our first episode? Yeah, well, because the entire reason that, like, Renaissance sculptures look the way they do is because people were starting to excavate a lot of the ancient Greek and Roman stuff. And having, like, a Roman statue in your garden was perceived as being, like, a very high status symbol. So a lot of the patrons at the time in the Renaissance started commissioning sculptors to make them statues that looked like Roman ones, basically to fake that they dug up a Roman one. Yeah. So the story behind this one, (laughs) I'll like post a picture of it. Who was it? A Borgia or Medici? Who was it? It was a cardinal. His name was Raphael Riario, but he used to collect like ancient and antique sculptures and then commissioned this one. From at the time, a lesser known artist named Michelangelo. Right, by from Michelangelo. (laughs) Michelangelo had previously made him a Cupid statue and passed it off as a real, like, ancient Roman statue. And then when the Cardinal Mm. found out about it, he, like, came after Michelangelo and demanded that he make him something else. But Michelangelo must have hated him because this (laughs) sculpture is so obviously not Roman. (laughs) Especially because it's so disrespectful to Bacchus because he's, like, clearly drunk. Like, staring at this cup of wine while a satyr is behind him, like, stealing the grapes out of his hand, and Bacchus doesn't even realize it. Like, it's so... And where where it sits is so that you're kind of eye level with the satyr, so that he's looking at you and, like, laughing while he's stealing the grapes, while, like, Bacchus is too stupid to realize that this guy is stealing and laughing at him behind him. And so it was rejected by the guy, because he was like, why did you do this? <laughs> And it was bought by uh, Michelangelo's friend, who was also, I think, this guy's, like, banker. <laughs> anyway, that's, that's, I mean, that's another example of, like, the kind of popular perception of Dionysus or Bacchus. While we're on this tangent, also, <laughs> I went to Italy this summer, and I went to the Vatican, and in the Vatican, there's this statue that, like, it's just a torso, basically. It says all around it that it's this statue of Hercules that Michelangelo thought was, like, the most perfect depiction of Roman art he'd ever seen. Like the proportions were so perfect. And he apparently like studied this thing for ages and he was originally commissioned to complete it. At the time I had been thinking a lot about, you know, people only seeing what they want to see about the ancient world. And I saw that and was like, this is such a perfect example of that. (laughs) Like this is the perfect statue. Is it complete? Not even a little bit. Can I even tell what it's supposed to look like? No. (laughs) Like, I don't know, there's something, there was just the symbolism of it. I took a lot of pictures of it. So what happens here is they quickly realize that Leo is not Dionysus. Yeah. Oh my god. They ask him to sing the Bacchanalia hymn or whatever it's called, and he sings the psych theme song. (laughs) I thought it was, I I assumed that it was because they referenced Percy Jackson in psych. Do they? But I, yeah, uh, someone says that's like someone's name is Percy Dunn. (laughs) <laughs> and I, Sean is like, uh, the lightning thief. <laughs> Sean clearly did not read that book because Percy was not the lightning thief. But it would be, it's it's a funny joke if you imagine that like that joke exists in the Percy Jackson universe, <laughs> which I assume <laughs> means like the actor is a demigod. And so you figure like, oh, he improvised that line and they left it or the writer is a demigod. And everyone was like, what does this mean? <laughs> I'm into it. And he was like, don't worry about it. It'll be funny to like three people. (laughs) (laughs) Well, then it means also like Leo's going to watch that episode. Well, no, because the only people who know, like, I don't know if Leo knows the lightning thief story, you know, Yeah. like, has that part of the story been told to him at this point? Probably not. Probably not. So like that joke would be funny to Percy, who can't remember anything, so <laughs> is missing the joke. Uh, can't even remember that he's not the lightning thief. Yeah. Grover probably also thinks it's funny. Poseidon probably thinks it's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so the jig is up pretty quickly on Leo's Dionysus impression, because it's bad. And the Minads go to attack them, and then Leo gets the idea that, um, because they can't kill them. Not that they, like are physically able to anyway but they also don't want to get cursed by Dionysus so they Leo comes up with a plan 
Jason goes off to distract them slash also get Buford. Oh, right. They found the table. We didn't mention that. They, yeah, they, they found, found the, the table, table like before they encountered the Minads. So I was like reading this short story like a tidy 20 minutes into the audio. It's like the hour long audio book and they like found the table. And I was like, this wasn't a very good quest. <laughs> so Jason goes off and Piper and Leo lure the Minads back to Bunker 9 where Leo is able to rig up on the Argo 2 a giant net like the one Hephaestus used in The Lightning Thief and also in mythology to trap Hera and trap the Minads. And then Jason comes back with Buford and brings them the whatever they needed, like the stabilizer core, the arc reactor so that they can put it in. Yeah, the, that, yeah that's what it was. Yep, uh, inside the ship and it doesn't blow up. Yep. And then Chiron shows up. Yeah. And uh, apparently they show up every once in a while, usually around the holidays, which was also another interesting <laughs> detail because I think originally the Bacchanalia was probably a summer thing, if I had to guess. I'm not sure exactly on the timing of like the Festival of Dionysus or whatever, but I'm pretty sure it was not a midwinter thing because you would want it was an outdoor theater. And also like running through the woods, tearing small animals apart just seems like a summery activity. Hmm. <laughs> you know that just screams hot girl summer i know when to me. i do it i usually do it in the summer that's true <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh we need a bead yeah so i kind of like the moment when you realize the laurels in their hair are actually vipers that are like braided in so maybe like a wreath of vipers i like that i think mine has to be the pine cone staff i thought about that one yeah cool <laughs> So, Son of Magic by Haley Riordan, written when Haley was 16. Basically, the story follows a pretentious, I guess he's like a philosopher named Dr. Claymore. He's giving a talk, um, and while he's giving the talk, he's asked by a kid named Alabaster Torrington <laughs> about how to stop death. And he brushes the kid off, but when a creature who seems unable to die comes after him and clearly has a connection to Alabaster, he realizes that there's something more going on here and decides to go find this kid, Alabaster, who it turns out is a son of Hikati who was part of the Titan army. And he's now dealing with sort of the aftermath of losing the war. And the, the monster is uh, his sister who's after him. And so Alabaster and Claymore team up to try and fight her, but Claymore is killed in the fight. And then brought back to life. Um, unimportant. Easter. It's Easter. <laughs> and, and it's the Easter story. Um, and the two of them decide they're going to continue Alabaster's work together, basically, at the end. That's like the basics. First impressions, because this was your first time reading this absolutely iconic short story. <laughs> My first impression was like, wow, there's a lot happens in this short story. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's also really interesting and very, very, very different. Um, not only because Rick Riordan didn't write it, but also because a lot of the choices that Haley made in terms of like the point of view and like how it's written are very different. Like I think there was one piece that like I was like, oh yeah, that's a nod to how Rick Riordan would have written this story, which is like at one point a character is wearing a kiss the chef apron and it's funny. Like, but aside <laughs> from that like one line, it it's it's a lot darker. There's a like much higher stakes mm -hmm. there's a lot less of like godly involvement too it's a lot more like about what the mortal characters are doing and it's also told not only from the point of view of an adult for like most of the story but like an immortal adult who is actually like quite cynical although he does have like the arrogance of a hero which i which i thought was really funny and I also thought it was cool that there was a lot of like kind of unanswered or interesting questions that the questions that are not necessarily asked by the original series, but like that Haley still kind of gives an answer to. Yeah, you can feel him like looking at his dad's work and being like, these are the things I would explore. And like, these yeah. are the things that maybe haven't come up, but that I want to know more about. Yeah. Like case in point, what happens when you shoot a monster with a regular gun? Or like, where does the mist come from? And why can monsters smell heroes? But also deals mm -hmm. with obviously the Titan army in a way that his father could never be brave enough to do. <laughs> <laughs> so... Maybe we go chronologically and see what comes up because I feel like there's something on every page of this <laughs> story to talk about. So we start uh, in the lecture hall or wherever they are where Dr. Claymore is giving a speech on death and his like upcoming book. Yeah, I think it's interesting the way he's presented. He's very arrogant, but I think he's also very cynical because 
one of the things that was getting me about this like first section was he keeps talking about how he's been praised as this like once in a lifetime genius and he's like got all these great ideas and he's like writing all these books about like death and what happens how can people laud him for being a genius for talking around the one question we will never have a definitive answer for like you there's no way to know what happens after death because like by definition everybody who knows cannot tell us and never will be able to yeah i imagined that his audience was probably similar to the people who like love the famous atheists of the world yeah um, because they're like you know talking back to the people who believe like that's kind of the audience that i imagined he has Yeah, that's kind of what I ended up drawing the conclusion of too, especially given like his dialogue and like what he's expecting people to say to him and stuff. It's like he's being presented as this like once in a lifetime genius, probably by virtue of being a cynic, like because he's always able to shoot down other people's ideas that make Mm -hmm. that's what like makes him such a genius as opposed to like doing something. That's like the the cult of personality that someone who is talking back to people who you think are stupid creates. And yet he seems to have such disdain for his fans as well because he mentions yeah. like Alabaster's come up to him and is like, I've read all your books and this guy is – and it's like not like a big event. Like it's not like he's getting mobbed outside and he's just like, ugh. It, you can tell like the genius status like it's something that I think he also has thought about himself probably longer than most people. There is a really funny line like later in the story where he's like writing his next book and he's just like, he the words poured out of him. He didn't know what they said but he knew they were genius. Yeah. <laughs> There's that one line uh, early on where it says, even as a child, he used his silver tongue to make him seem little less than a god to his peers and teachers, which like it puts him at the level of arrogance where you just in these kinds of stories, you know, the gods are about to come down on him. (laughs) It's like, you know what kind of story that you're reading right now. And so (laughs) you read that line and you're like, oh, no, that's kind of why I love the very like opening line where he asks his audience like when you die what happens and then sits there all cocky like obviously no one here knows the answer because we in like the Percy Jackson universe do know that answer like we know exactly what happens when you die and so it immediately like places us as like kind of smarter than him so that you know Mm -hmm. he's sitting there acting like he's so smart but we already know more than him and like in this story about like the interaction between the mortal world and the mythological world kind of immediately places you as an audience member on the side of the mythological world and like that's Mm. the world that you now belong to because you know these things and it's it's almost like the way that there are plenty of examples of like monsters in the series who know more than your victim and know more of what's going on and you're just sort of watching them catch up like kind of the start of every Percy Jackson book where he hasn't caught on to what's going on around him but like there are monsters Mm. in the room with him (laughs) I just liked it as an opening moment well done Haley (laughs) (laughs) yeah so uh Alabaster stops him in the parking lot and is like no like seriously I want to talk to you about like this death stuff and how do we like stop death and the professor kind of like waves him off and he goes home And then he goes to sleep and dreams himself into a vision with Alabaster and Hecate. Right. A lot to talk about here. Yeah. First of all, this scene is taking place in sort of a a church that is so old that it's like crumbling and covered in dust and just generally in ruins. And Hecate is depicted as like a a woman in robes praying to some unknown force. (laughs) But what's weird about it is that, like, Alabaster, when he sees Claymore, he says, like, oh, mortals aren't allowed to set foot in the house of a god. And I was like, what is going on here? (laughs) (laughs) Because I assume that he's saying that because this is, like, Hecate's realm, because this, it seems to be her her place. Um, And so I was, I was trying really hard to find some connection between Christianity and Hecate, like, because you'd think, like, if any of the gods are in conflict with Christianity, it's Hecate, like goddess of magic and witchcraft. Because I feel like at this point, she's become almost like demonic in some ways. And I assume that she wasn't always that. 
and was just a goddess of magic and then because of like christian morals became like oh this is the goddess of witchcraft so she's very evil and scary and everyone should look out for her yes and no from like my kind of cursory research on the topic the thing is like magical sorcery because you know misogyny is a thing are villains in greek mythology for a reason it's like this deep-seated fear of like magic and potions and drugs and there's a lot of like links to like xenophobia that's tied to them as well and i think katie is like absolutely tied to all of that and there's a lot of like different theories as to her origin she's definitely not indo-european from what i can see so she's definitely like a a leftover or and or import god of some other culture basically that would again because the greeks are quite misogynistic and xenophobic her fodlers because of like the mystical the mysticism like surrounding a lot of those rituals and that like general fear of sorcery would have all manifested into kind of like what i would describe as like a pre-demonic state because it wasn't like the exact same and then i'm sure that like interpretation just got more and more as christianity came into the picture okay so (laughs) then (laughs) answer your question (laughs) well it wasn't really a question it was more of just a like what's a katie's house doing in a church Is this a church that she has now, because it was run down, like taken over in some way? Or has she been sitting there so long that it crumbled around her? Because that's kind of the vibe that I get because she like doesn't really move. Like she just kind of sits there. I mean, a lot of like old temples were converted into churches. So it's possible it was like originally a church to, or a temple to Hecate that was then turned into a church. That's the answer. <laughs> that feels right. Still doesn't answer what she's praying to, but maybe we'll get to that. (laughs) Okay, but in this scene, we also find out that Alabaster fought in the Titan army, which we'll we'll probably talk more about um, when we actually have our conversation with him later on, because those pages are insane. But he specifically also says that he fought in the Titan army, like, in his mother's name. Um, Because his mother is, of course, one of the... I think she's actually referenced as being one of the gods, the minor gods who've turned at the end of Battle of the Labyrinth. Mm Mm-hmm. And most of this conversation is just sort of brushed off as nonsense by Claymore. And eventually, Hakadi lets him wake up. And then he's like, all right, I'm going to go right at my favorite cafe, but I'll bring yeah, my gun. But I'm just bringing a gun. <laughs> so he goes to write and Lamia shows up and she reveals that she's Alabaster's sister. And he's like, that's ridiculous. You're like way older than him. And here is where she exposes her her true nature to claymore and transforms into a monster which is like a sort of half lizard thing <laughs> and i thought her story was so was so interesting <laughs> i loved having her as a character to incorporate here when you say her story do you mean in the story or like her story like, like her, in mythology? her myth I I had never heard of her. It's also just like so fitting for her story to come immediately after we like went through this whole quest, this 600 page quest to save Hera. Yeah. Because do you want to tell her story, Phoebe? Yeah, I'll just read. So while she's attacking Claymore, she says, I have walked this world for thousands of years. You are immortal, blind. I was like you once. I thought I was above the gods. I was the daughter of Hecate, goddess of magic. Zeus himself fell in love with me. I considered myself his equal. But then what did the gods do to me? Hera slaughtered my children right in front of my eyes. Yeah, there's more to it that's revealed later, but basically it's just Zeus fell in love with her and Hera was mad about it and murdered her children and murdered her children and turned her into a monster and like i i looked her up and it was like she can't close her eyes or like sleep at all like she's constantly looking for her children so yeah having this immediately after having our quest to save Hera and like basically spending all that time trying to figure out how we can have sympathy for this woman who has just been terrible to us um every time we've seen her and especially reading this between the lost hero and son of neptune because we're gonna have a lot of Hera juno stuff in the next book too you know we've been getting to know Hera a little bit through and like getting a lot more of her through the lost hero and then we like come back to the mythology real quick before bringing you back into the present and like i liked having it as sort of like a grounding moment Mm. one other thing i wanted to bring up about uh lamia but that i just want to leave for a second before we come back to it eventually um is also like looking into it i don't think she in myth is a child of Hecate. 
She's mortal. It also means that making her a child of Hecate was like an absolute choice of Haley's. And I want to dig into that choice in a little bit when we talk a little bit more about Alabaster. Hmm. Yeah. To me, it was like she's such a clear parallel for Claymore as like a mortal who thought they were on the level of the gods and then sort of became over the course of their story a mythological creature thanks to the gods and so it, it was surprising to me when I looked her up and realized that she had been mortal in the original stories and that Haley had made the choice to make her not the clear parallel that I expected her to be interesting I had a different interpretation of both of them so she shows up and talks about Alabaster and how he's hiding from her and she wants to find him and she wants the Professor Claymore to give her sorry Dr. Claymore to give her <laughs> his address and he's like no and she starts she she turns she grows like lizard she, she grows like lizard <laughs> <laughs> she like sort of starts growing a little more like lizardy aspects and um claymore shoots her in the face and the bullets like do kind of work but she's able to knit herself back together again really fast and he's like timing it to see how long he can slow her down and he's generally going about it quite smartly which i appreciate I also love that he knows Latin, so she's saying all these curses in Latin and these words in Latin, and he's like, oh. I know what's about to come for me. <laughs> and I love that. I don't love Haley's Latin, but I love that. Leave him alone. <laughs> <laughs> I shouldn't be mean. It's not that mean, though, because basically what happened was when Rick uses Latin in his books, it's usually like grammatically correct, just quite simple and using English syntax. So it doesn't it's not like really Latin, but at least it's like the ver the words are in the right form. But the thing with Haley was in the audiobook, I kept getting distracted because I was like, wait, is it sounds like he's saying like incantari. So is that supposed to be like the second person passive infinitive? Like what's going on? I was like, oh, that's such interesting grammatical construction, Haley. But then I, I actually looked at the text. It's just the dictionary forms of all of the words. So incantare is how it's spelled. And it's uh, that's just to incant. So I was a little sad. I got excited. So how was he able to escape? I forget. I don't remember. But <laughs> first, during this battle against her, Lamia kills the owner of the coffee shop. Basically, she sets like a, a, the place that he finds sanctuary on fire. Like she sets a spell that mm -hmm. will set a fire wherever he feels most safe. And so the coffee shop that they're in <laughs> is set on fire. It's incantare, colon, templum incendere. Which is to spell, colon, temple, to fire, <laughs> <laughs> to burn. <laughs> so she sets this fire and then starts taunting Claymore about the fact that his laptop is in there and all of his work is going to be set on fire. Worst fear as a writer, right there. Yeah, honestly. <laughs> but Claymore surprised me here because instead of like going after the yeah. laptop, he actually goes after her and is angry that she could be acting like this after just killing a guy. I, I kind of assumed Claymore wouldn't care just based on the sort of character that he is. And also the fact that he shot her in the face. <laughs> yeah, I think this is the, it's the moment, that's the moment that for me really like solidifies him as a character. Because again, yeah. he makes that unexpected choice that sort of seems like it's against a lot of what he's doing. And at the same time, I feel like that choice is like the only reason why the ending works for me is because you know mm -hmm. you see this guy and you're you think he's kind of this archetype of the arrogant and yet ignorant adult but I think that's the moment he kind of steps out of the archetype and is like I'm actually mature because I think that's like generally speaking how a lot of adults are depicted in middle grade there's like a set list of archetypes because they can't be too helpful because otherwise you don't have a middle grade story mm-hmm if they're around. They have to be dead or caricatures and unhelpful most of the time. It made me actually start thinking about his character a lot more because <laughs> it made me realize like how much you probably have to think about and most likely fear death a little bit to dedicate your life to exploring it the way that Claymore does. You know, seeing his friend burn like that, it probably, in my mind, I, I started to think that it must be Claymore, it must connect him back to what made him start exploring this sort of philosophical 
question in the first place like having to encounter the loss of a human life and realizing that his friend is now lost and then it's like mm -hmm. you know he's asked that question that he's always asking everyone else of like what happens when you die and he acts so cocky about it because he probably hasn't had to encounter it very often considering he doesn't seem to have many connections in his life yeah Although maybe it also, like, I think raises an interesting question because, like, this, again, the incantation she gives is, like, burn the temple, which means, like, burn what's sacred to you. And it's interesting how I think it shows that even if you're, like, kind of arrogant and keep to yourself, like, it doesn't mean you don't, like, still build community. It doesn't mean you don't still, like, have things you care about. And it also doesn't necessarily mean you're not willing to fight for those things. It's just, like, one aspect. And I think in that way, it feels like a very heroic balance. Because in order to be a hero on those levels, you do need to have a level of arrogance because you need to be able to constantly throw yourself into danger again and again for other people's sakes. Most of the time, most heroes are just pulling solutions out of nowhere. Like, again, see Percy Jackson. Like, I'm sure I'll figure this out. Challenges God to death battle when he's mortal and God is not. But at the same time, still have, like, compassion and still care deeply about your home and about defending people. It's interesting because for me, uh, you mentioned your interpretation of like him and Lamia as they kind of function the story, but I had a slightly different one that's related to this. Mm -hmm. I think both of them represent elements of basically things that are like weighing on Alabaster. And I feel like this professor in his level of a balance of like arrogance and compassion does kind of remind me of a lot of the intentions of Luke and like Luke's army and like kind of what that entire philosophy believes in, which in the story we learn Alabaster still believes in. But this doesn't really fully make sense until I talk about Lamia too. I'll put a pin in that for now. So he escapes and calls Alabaster who tells him to come to his house. And so Claymore and Alabaster meet up and have uh, the conversation to end all conversations. <laughs> yeah. I love this conversation so much. I'm going to like try to keep myself from just reading the whole page. <laughs> Claymore asks Alabaster to just explain what's going on. What did it mean in the dream when he was talking about the Titan army? Like what, you know, what what's going on here? There were like three big parts of this that I wanted to talk about like but there are some smaller pieces like he tells the story of the princess Andromeda being blown up from his perspective we can assume based on the story that uh, Alabaster tells that that kid that Percy told to run did not make it off the ship no. <laughs> Alabaster did though Alabaster seems to be like one of very few people who survived that uh, explosion because he says that he only survived because he was able to cast a spell that protected him but the big lines that i wrote down in this conversation as he's explaining the titan cause he says after cronus's death the olympian god smashed any remaining resistance it was a massacre if i remember right my mother told me that camp half-blood and its allies had 16 casualties total we had hundreds wild <laughs> Well, part of me was like, does, is that Half-Bloods or is that like, or are they counting a lot of the monsters as part of their army? I assume it counts monsters. Or maybe they're counting like mortal mercenaries. That's it. You know what it is? It's the count of demigods and mortal mercenaries. Because I think Luke's army is described as like having numbers in the thousands at one point, including the monsters. It's like, and it's it also like the disproportion of casualties, like 16. Right? Like after reading those books and feeling like, you know, like I was trying to count. <laughs> We've only seen like maybe five on screen, but you just assume that they're losing they're losing large numbers of campers. Although, hang on, doesn't Percy say that their army is about forty kids? Like when the kids come from Camp Half Blood, it's about forty kids. But that's also before Clarice shows up and before just the hunters. They're the, the hunters. It's before they show up. I'm pretty sure or it might be when Thalia shows up. I can't remember. Uh, I think it's before they show up. But either way, the proportion of loss might be similar with like 16 out of, you know, 40 or 50 kids versus hundreds of deaths among a thousand person army. But it's still like the number of people who must have died in this war. It sounds like the gods, even when the, the war was over for us, continued to go after these kids. Because that's what this story is about, is that like this was the gods coming after Alabaster because of what he did. And, like, it's also described as a, a massacre after Cronus's death. 
I would also, I will also say that I, there is no mention in camp of kids returning from being in Luke's army. But we also know in the same story that there was like an amnesty and you were allowed to like come back to camp if you'd been part of the Titan army. And also the more I think about it, the more I'm like, there's no way the gods would let any threat to them survive. Like even if these kids agree, like, yeah, I'll go back to Camp Half-Blood. It's like, they're not going to trust you going back to Camp Half-Blood, actually. I'm going to search the word amnesty in my... Okay. We weren't all destroyed. Most of the remaining half-bloods fled or were captured. They were so demoralized they joined the enemy, meaning Camp Half-Blood. Um, mm. There was a general amnesty, I guess you'd call it, a deal negotiated by the same kid who killed Kronos, so Percy. So... <laughs> Unclear. Unclear what happened to those kids. I don't know if they ever made it to camp. That's, pro- that's what they want us to think. Mm. And then... This was the part when I read this section, this page, I think I texted you while I was reading this page about how I had the urge to stand up while reading it while on a train, (laughs) like while on a moving train. (laughs) Uh Claymore keeps asking him about the gods and Alabaster says, it's better not to imagine them as gods. The best way to think of them is more like a divine mafia. They used their threat to force my mother into accepting the deal, and in the process, exile me from camp so I can't corrupt my brothers and sisters. But I'll never bow to the Olympian gods after the atrocities they committed. Their followers are blind. I'd never set foot in their camp, and if I did, it would only be to give that son of Poseidon what he deserves. Icon. (laughs) I would love to see it. I'm I'm understanding a lot more why people love to imagine like Alabaster and Luke plotting together. He's just so wholeheartedly like a part of this cause in a way that even Ethan doesn't give me this vibe. Because <laughs> like, he's so, so much of this isn't personal. It seems to be very like he just deeply believes that the Olympians are evil and need to be taken down. And yeah. all of this only confirmed that for him. Like having this perspective... And this like sympathetic perspective on the kids who joined the Titan War and didn't repent. Like we have Luke and Ethan who are like heroes in the end because they realized the error of their ways and did the right thing. But Alabaster is just like still fully Team Kronos and like plans on killing Percy if he ever sees him again. And we get to actually see him in like a, a good light and have all of his reasoning backed up despite him yeah. being like the clearest embodiment of the titan cause and i also feel like it gets a bit glossed over in the story but i want to dig deep into the part where he also talks about how he kind of was the leader for all of his siblings and brought them into the cause and then all of them died and he's like the lone survivor it's so interesting too because it, it really brings luke to mind for me as well just in terms of like you know being this kind of like leader that's like almost parentified and like bringing people to your cause feeling responsible for them and then also like ultimately responsible for the fact that a lot of them died first you know they died for you even though you're the one who's supposed to protect them this is where also the lamia thing comes in for me what i was thinking about even more because she's known for kind of being responsible for the deaths of her children and I was thinking about that a lot where the main person he has to face off against is not only another like the last remaining of his siblings but it's also yet another one of his siblings that like is sort of haunted by and like very much carrying the weight of the deaths of like those that were in her protection Mm -hmm. I like that because in the way that Lamia is like forced to to wander the earth, her eyes open, looking for her children. He's like left alone to do the same in a way. I did. This is where we circle back to my thought on Dr. Claymore. Lamia, I kind of feel like for Alabaster, is very representative of that reflection in him of like what he's done that's hunting him down in his exile. Versus Dr. Claymore is kind of this representation of a lot of the things he's also still carrying of like all of these heroic values and like this older cause. You know, he's arrogant, but he ultimately, you know, cares. But it is interesting that Alabaster kind of has to battle Lamia at the end. To me, that's kind of very representative of him grappling with a big part of, I think, the reason why he's exiled and probably a huge piece of the pain he's carrying with him. Hmm. Yeah, in this battle also, it's mentioned that uh, Alabaster's sword is imperial gold. Yeah, that's that's a detail. <laughs> but I don't think Hecate is a Roman counterpart. So I'm like, did he just steal that from someone? Yeah, I wonder if 
the Titan army because we know that the there was a battle on Mount Othrus, but I don't know if we know whether the Titan army had any kind of interactions with the Romans before that. We presumably Luke would have recruited some Romans. Like, I wonder if the Titan army was aware of all of the Roman stuff that was going on long before. Wait, who funded them? Oh, duh. (laughs) (laughs) Never mind, everyone. We'll get to talk about that later. (laughs) So in this battle, Alabaster finds a way to destroy Lamia, which is basically to make her permanently ash instead of like her turning into ash and then remaking herself but he won't go through with it because Lamia has claymore like in her clutches and if uh alabaster says the spell he uh she's going to kill claymore and he doesn't want anyone to die on his watch and so claymore is like i am getting in the way here let me just kill myself yeah and so he lets himself be killed so that alabaster will go through with the spell that's an interesting line in this story. That's, um, I forget the exact line, the exact wording, but it's something like, heroes don't die. Yeah, that Alabaster says, like, not to worry because heroes never die. And then Claymore is like, well, actually, they die a lot. <laughs> 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 yeah, that line intrigued me as well, because I feel like that it goes against, like, it's in deep contradiction to, like, almost everything in this series as a whole. Yeah, the way that I rationalized it was that he was talking like story-wise. In I, I was like, you know, Luke has been saying a lot of things to them in his like pre-battle speeches where he's like, heroes never die, guys, because the stories, yeah. <laughs> so maybe uh, it's just kind of a line that's been stuck in uh, Alabaster's head because Luke is constantly talking about legacy and glory and all that. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. But he does sacrifice himself for this kid. And I think there's like this interesting character work that leads up to this moment as well that also kind of is an extension of him letting his laptop burn, I feel like. It's sort of the same realization that we as readers have at the beginning, right? Where he, the first question is like, well, what happens after we die? Which we already know in this world, what happens? And he comes to that realization as well throughout the story. And he realizes that like his life's work, these questions he's been noodling at, all of this stuff that he's thought he's been so smart for like talking about and debunking is like has an answer that people know and is like ultimately like meaningless. And he just feels like he can't make an impact because he's within the mortal world. Because I couldn't help but think about Hal when reading this as well, because that's another like older character, older hero there's a lot of fire in both stories. <laughs> Ultimately, this story also comes down to a sacrifice of an older character uh, for the sake of the younger demigod. And it's also both times the way for the older character to kind of reclaim the agency they've lost and or revealed to have lost through the course of the story. Hmm. So he sacrifices himself. Yeah, and finds himself floating down the river sticks, wondering about all of this. When Hecate pulls him from the river and back into her church. She basically says that uh, she wants to return him to the mortal world as a mist form, which is basically like a ghost, but made yeah, of the which mist. Which were introduced earlier in the story because yeah. Alabaster's made himself a mist form little dad just to have a parental yeah. supervision, I guess. It's like basically someone who appears human to the humans around them. But, like, is just made of the mist, like, isn't actually there. So it's interesting that, like, a soul can be placed in one. And so she is going to uh, bring him back as a mist form so that he can basically help and watch over Alabaster. And she says, she talks a little bit about Gaia. And I thought this was interesting because she says uh, Lamia has risen up to challenge, basically, Zeus hoping the children of magic will follow her under Gaia's banner. Um, there must be another way. The other gods have never trusted my offspring, but this Gaian rebellion will only bring more bloodshed. Alabaster must find another answer, some new arrangement that will bring peace to my children. Because I have spent this whole story wondering if the kids who used to be part of the Titan army were going to turn to Gaia's side because she's also going after the mm. gods. And so I was surprised that at the end it was sort of revealed that well, I mean, it was it was revealed earlier that Lamia was a servant of Gaia, but I was surprised that 
this wasn't a direction that Alabaster was heading. Although I kind of assume that this conversation is because Hikati worries that he might end up seeing that as an, a new answer to his problems. What is the reason Lamia gives for why she's hunting down Alabaster? It's like because she hates Hera and the demigods are technically Hera's family and so she wants to like kill all demigods. <laughs> yeah, because it does kind of contradict that idea. Because yeah. why would she be hunting him down as opposed to turning him? Right, to her it's side? like I feel like Lamia should be like trying to encourage him to come to their side because if anyone's going to join them, like, but she hopes that Claymore will be able to help Alabaster make the right decision. Find a third option that's not join them or attack them, like, find a new way to lead them to peace, mm-hmm. um, which Claymore reacts to with being like what if they don't want peace and do want to fight back and she's like well then you know help him with that too i guess (laughs) but help him make the right decisions uh which i really i really liked this moment just the acknowledgement of like at this point he probably won't want peace and so what are you going to do about that it's also interesting because her one of her epithets at least in latin is trivia which as fun as it would be for her to be the goddess of trivia it literally means three via like three roads so Third option. Third ah. road. Third path. There you go. Um, that's kind of I mean, that's how this story ends is with uh Claymore being brought back to life as a mist form and being like, Okay, we have a lot of we've got work to do and slamming the hood down on the trunk. Um, that's how this ends basically which the fact that they're setting up like there are these two guys out there who are looking for a way to bring down the gods in some way and like they're just out there somewhere throughout the events of the rest of the series watch out I kind of love that that's that's what's gonna happen in Chalice of the Gods I'm gonna bring him back. Genuinely, when is Alabaster coming back? Alabaster is such a cool <laughs> character and like yeah. just to such a good invention and like addition to the world. And the fact that we haven't seen him, or like I don't know if he's ever referenced again. I also wanna I wanted to mention how he's also another character who's been basically exiled because of the god his his godly parent, as opposed to I mean his own action as well. But in that way, that also really reminds me of Calypso. They both were the children of godly parents who took the side of their godly parents in a godly war who have been exiled because of the decisions of said godly parent and also their own compliance in said war, but like mostly because of the actual post-war actions of their godly parent. I feel like these two could talk about a lot. Mm -hmm. And he's kind of like the Calypso of this war in the way that Calypso was the Calypso of the original Titan War. Yeah. This story really just makes me wonder, like, so much of how the Titan army functioned as, like, a group of kids. Because it's so rare that we actually see the demigods in the Titan army. I want to see Luke through Alabaster's eyes. I want to see, like... Not just Luke, too. I want to see, like, the whole Titan army through Alabaster's eyes. I think that'd be so interesting. Yeah. Um, but especially like the demigod relationships because that's just something yeah. that, that really doesn't exist. It's like mostly the monsters that we focus on and it makes like the reading this story just made me sad that that never happened. <laughs> that we never got to like really see some of the relationships and like the demigods who were joining this cause. At Haley, write a prequel. Literally, okay, Haley listen. <laughs> <laughs> this is what I really need is for you to take to heart the things that you're clearly picking up on in your dad's series and just overthrow your father because that's what he's writing (laughs) into this book series is like wouldn't it be cool if you overthrew your father bring on a new golden age genuinely i think it would be so good (laughs) okay do you have a bead for this one um you know what i'm gonna go my theme i think it's alabaster's sword with the runes no, you know what it is, actually? It's Alabaster's bulletproof vest that's also got runes his on outfit, it. His outfit. We didn't even mention how good his outfit is. <laughs> his outfit's amazing. He's wearing a bulletproof vest over, like, child's pajamas, basically. <laughs> Fashion icon. Mine, because the scene that sticks with me is, you know, that one page, that one or two pages where he explains it all to Claymore. The whole time, he's just got his little cup of tea that he keeps sipping from, so it's going to be the cup of tea. (laughs) 
Thank you all for listening to Monster Donut. Next time, we're going to be doing something a little bit different um, because the sun and the star comes out uh, the day that this episode comes out. And so what we're going to do is, because Emily is not reading the sun and the star and is waiting, I'm going to read it with the mic next to me and basically just live react into it. And then we'll return to Heroes of Olympus. You can find what uh, the art that I made this time around on our social media, which is at PJOPod on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Um, episode's still not on YouTube. Sorry about that. <laughs> oh, right. We have a, a the Ko-Fi. Ko-Fi. Coffee. <laughs> it exists, and it's uh, in the link tree that's on our social media. Again, that's at PJOPod. And now we're going to start doing that thing where we're like, please like and rate us and leave comments. It really helps us out. Yeah, you can do that also. I think you can only do it on mobile on Spotify if you try to do it on Spotify. I Also, Spotify added this new feature where like when you post a new episode, there's a thing that shows up on the mobile version that says like, what did you think of this episode? And it's not to review it. It's like a Q&A. Like I can respond to whatever you say down there <laughs> and like approve what you put down there. Um, but like you guys can use that as a Q&A if you like want to ask questions or like comment on the stuff that we said in the episode. We're going to do another Q&A episode at the end of um, the series like we did before. So if you yeah. have any questions you want to start submitting, feel free. We will hold on to them and yeah. answer them. And now it's like super easy. You can just put it at the bottom of the episode. It's There's a part that says, what did you think of this episode? And it's it's just a Q&A. It looks like it should be a review section, but it's not. It's literally a Q&A. <laughs> Just use it to send Phoebe lots of heart emojis. You can do that too. I like the light pink one that they just released. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. See you guys next time. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.